The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. War correspondents are a topic not yet covered in the 12 years of Civil War Talk Radio. Tonight we repair that omission with a look at the adventures of two reporters, <coughs> excuse me, two reporters from the New York Tribune. The book is Junius and Albert's Adventures in the Confederacy, a Civil War Odyssey. The author is 21st century reporter Peter Carlson, and we'll find out what happened to Junius and Albert on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you as per usual from the third floor of the Brewster Building here on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, G. Vegas, as the students call it, with a combination of bitter irony and appreciation that it's the metropolis of Eastern North Carolina, but not speaking for G. Vegas or ECU or any other enterprise, just myself. Likewise, my guests will do the same as we always do here at Civil War Talk Radio. Well, it is a beautiful evening, spring, April of 2016, approaching the end of the academic year. The Stanley Cup playoffs are underway. My Red Wings not doing so well, but at least they're playing. 
students are getting ready for final exams, the schedule becomes busier and busier. <clears throat> Yesterday, the Faculty Senate debated a change to the faculty manual that would require faculty to be, faculty to be present on campus uh, some undefined amount of the time. This was partly out of, uh, I think, frustration that some people like me are here all day, every day, uh, just about. <clears throat> and then others have different schedules. They may work at home. They may work in a library or a lab. They may be out in the field uh, on an expedition. They may work 24-7 for two weeks and then not come in the office at all. Uh, and other people see their door closed and they get jealous, which I think is, is mistaken. But there are also some people who take advantage of the technology we're using right here, right now, to talk electronically, to teach their classes from remote locations. And if everybody fled uh, Greenville to teach from a remote location, we'd have no university. We'd be the University of Phoenix, and nobody wants that. So there was some discussion about that. But one of the things that struck me was the initial draft of the policy said faculty should be present consistently during the academic work week. And I've never heard of an academic work week. Uh, if if uh, every academic I know spends some part of most weekends or many weekends grading papers or doing research or uh, working on something, and once in a while you go to the gym on a Wednesday morning, which people in the 9 to 5 world can't normally do. But the idea of an academic work week, that just really threw me for a loop. It, it, it's the beginning of a slippery slope to where they'll have us punching a clock. They did that once, I should say, in my old haunt, the Lincoln Museum in Fort Wayne, Indiana, where we were supervised by the Lincoln Financial Group Insurance Company, and those people did work 9 to 5, and they could not stand to see those of us in the museum sauntering in at 10 or 10.30 in the morning. Of course, they had not been with us the night before at 9 or 9.30 at night, getting an exhibit ready for an opening or attending an opening or speaking to a community group or doing something else. We didn't have the same hours. So one year they actually put us on the clock. We had to punch cards uh, or report our, our billable hours essentially every day for a year. And when the year was over, they found the people in the museum were working longer hours than the people on 9 to 5 and they quietly let the matter drop. I think the same thing would happen if they tried that with faculty, but we shall see. Well, uh, it is almost final exam times, and I will just share this with you before going any further. The last exam in modern U.S. history, I received a short answer from a student about Herbert Hoover, who said that he was disliked by Americans because he didn't say enough to help end the Great Depression. And for that reason, they gave him the nickname, The Silent Cow. I assume the student confused Silent Cal Coolidge with their own handwriting or my pronunciation and Hoover's tendency to say prosperity is just around the corner instead of taking serious action to, and brought that all together to come up with the nickname The Silent Cow. But I will never again be able to think of Herbert Hoover as anything but The Silent Cow. So, just share that with you this evening. Coming up next week, we will have Stephen Town from Indiana University, Purdue University, 
at Indianapolis with discussion of surveillance and spies in the Civil War, exposing Confederate conspiracies in America's heartland. And then on May 4th, no live show, you will be relaxing, doing whatever normal people ought to do on a Wednesday evening or whenever you want to download, and we will be grading those final exams. But that'll be the end of uh, the academic season, and I'll be back with a new show on May 11th. Our guest that day will be Lisa Tendrich-Frank. Her book is The Civilian War, Confederate Women and Union Soldiers During Sherman's March, and we'll have more after that. We've got a couple lined up. May 18th, uh, actually got several uh, contenders for May 18th, so we'll hold off on that. The following week, no show, because it's time for the Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours annual jaunt through this hallowed ground, the bus tour of Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania. Hope you can join us, contact Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours, and sign yourselves up, come along for the ride. It will be fun. You can... Learn more about what's going on at the website that we uh, use every week. You've heard the name so many times, I'll just let it go. Uh, Now, impedimentsofwar.org is the greatest of all websites, so I'll tell you what it is. Uh, Check it out. You can also donate to the show. Click on the PayPal button. Send a donation to civilwartr at aol.com. I will use it to buy more books for the show. I bought tonight's book for the show using your cash donations. And if you donate more than I need for a given book, I will spend it on bonbons or something else, personal indulgence. So don't deduct this on your taxes. It's just a gift. It's not tax deductible. Well, tonight we have a book that was recommended to me by a listener, and your suggestions are always welcome. Please continue to send them in. Uh, it was suggested to to have a look at this. Uh, the author is Peter Carlson, uh, a columnist at American History Magazine, formerly uh, wrote for the Washington Post. He has put together a very uh, intriguing uh, Civil War tale entitled Junius and Albert's Adventures in the Confederacy, a Civil War Odyssey. We'll find out what it's about and how it came to be from the author, Mr. Carlson. Are you there? I am here. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, glad you could join us for this. Um, this this book was recommended to me by, uh, by a listener to the show, and I uh, very much appreciated it. It was a an excellent recommendation, a very entertaining and uh, enlightening book about of, of a story that most people have not come across. But let me start with you. Um, you you write, uh, according to the dust jacket here, for American History Magazine. Is that still the, the day job? That is, that is true. I do. I write a column for them in every issue and uh, larger pieces uh, sporadically. So, uh, were you doing that when you wrote this book, or was this in the Washington Post era? No, I wrote this book. I was working for them, and um, when I got the book contract, I stopped working full-time as an editor there and continued writing the column and wrote the book. And I've been writing the column and other stuff ever since. 
so how how does one get the the nerve to decide I'm going to make a living writing uh, columns and books? Well, I'm I I, I'm a, I am a bought out former reporter of the Washington Post. Uh, they gave us old farts um, uh, early retirement buyouts back in the early when well, mine was 2008. There were four rounds of buyouts. As you know, the newspaper business isn't doing too well. So I took this buyout, got an early pension, and decided to pretend it was a Guggenheim grant, and proceeded from there. Well, well, that, that's uh, I have a close friend in the newspaper business, and he has been faced with that same decision to make. And uh, it, it, it's not one that I envy, but it's always good to hear somebody making making the best of it, doing well with it. So. Was the Civil War a topic you had long been interested in, or is this, is this story bringing you to it for the first time? Well, it's the first time I've written a book about it. Uh, I've written a couple of other books on American history. I'm, I'm, I'm an American history buff from way back. My mother was a history teacher, a high school history teacher. Um, so I, I got my history at her knee. Um, and, of course, when you're writing about, when you're, when you're a journalist, you're dealing with things that relate to history so um but the civil war i i always enjoyed it it's a fascinating topic um it's not the only fascinating topic in american history for me as it is for some but uh it's endlessly fascinating well i I was struck by that reading how uh in this book you tell the story of these two reporters junius brown and albert richardson but it's written in such a way that if, if somebody were not uh, a an expert, even if they were relatively new to the topic, you fill in sort of sidebars or background pieces explaining what's going on at a given time. So, did you was that the level that you brought to this project, where you, you sort of knew something about, say, Champ Ferguson the gorilla before you started, or was there a lot of background research involved to put this together? Oh, I had to do a lot of research. Um, I knew, uh, you know, I, I I was familiar with the contours of the Civil War, as many of us are, but um, I had to do all kinds of research around the story of these guys and the people that they met and the places that they went to. And uh, Champ Ferguson was among the many amazing discoveries that I made. <laughs> so, uh, how did you discover this story in the first place? What what brought you to uh, to Junius and Albert? Well, uh, it's funny you should ask. What happened is this: it was. In December of 2010, I had been writing a column and, and articles for American history, and I, and I suggested to them, why, you know, I've been writing all these things on a freelance basis. Why don't you hire me as an editor? So they took me to lunch, and uh, we discussed the topic, and they decided to hire me. So as soon as they actually hired me, I said, well, okay, I've got an idea for you. The 150th anniversary of the Civil War is coming up very soon. How about if we run a two-page spread in every issue that would be a journalistic account of something that happened in the Civil War 150 years before the date of our issue? And the guy who ran the place said, well, that would be a good idea, but the problem is Civil War journalism was really lousy. And I thought to myself, really? Did all of the journalists covering the Civil War 
miss the biggest story of our, you know, of our history. And I, so I thought to myself, I think this guy's full of baloney. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know. So I went down to the uh, library at American History, which is extensive. All the books that are sent in for review are kept. So I took, grabbed two books on American, uh, on journalism in the Civil War and read them. And I came across the story of these two guys told in just a few pages each. And so uh, I said, wow, that sounds like a movie. Of course, I don't make movies, but I do occasionally write books. So I thought, wow, I wonder if there's enough information available to write this as a book. So I immediately looked at the footnotes and realized very quickly that both of these guys had written books about their experiences. So I said, well, that sounds good. So I got the books, and um, the story was fleshed out in them, and... and, um, I continued to research around them about the places they were in, the prisons they were in, the newspaper they worked for, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and realized that, yes, there was enough information available to write a detailed nonfiction account of their amazing adventures. So uh, I did. So you had this idea that you could piece together this as as a nonfiction uh, account. I, I reading it, it it's very persuasive that it's it's an accurate account of, of what goes on, but it's not written as an academic account. Uh, for example, there there are no footnotes to sources. Uh, did you? Well, where, there's where, a ba- in the back there's that. I don't know twenty pages or so explaining. Mm-hmm. My sources, and in, in some instances where the, a story was strange, I would say exactly where I got it. So anyone, who, and I invited anyone who wanted to learn more to email me, which a few people have done, mm-hmm. and I would give them a little more information, which I, which I had done with my previous book, too. Um, so, yeah, I didn't use footnotes, but the, everything in there is is sourced. All Even the dialogue is comes from someplace, usually one of the two main characters' books, but sometimes other people's memoirs. They were in prisons in which many of the people wrote either a book or a diary or a memoir or something that has traveled down through history that I was able to use. So it's as accurate as any academic book, but, you know, I'm a journalist, and I spent a decade or so writing for the Washington Post magazine, and we would write long pieces of five or 10,000 words. Uh, and so I learned pacing and, and how to make a story, uh, you know, readable. So I think the well, difference is not in sourcing. The difference is in the quality of storytelling, really. Well, let's take a short break, come back and talk about that difference. Uh, I'm talking tonight with Peter Carlson, author of Junius and Albert's Adventures in the Confederacy, A Civil War Odyssey. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. 
Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Peter Carlson, author of Junius and Albert's Adventures in the Confederacy, a Civil War Odyssey. Uh, This is the story of two uh, reporters for the New York Tribune, Junius Brown and Albert Richardson, who serve, uh, who who have various uh, adventures before the war, but they, (coughs) excuse me, they both uh, go off during the Civil War to write about it. Uh, I, I was captured immediately uh, by the fact first that Albert Richardson was from Franklin, Massachusetts, which is where I lived when I was in graduate school for a number of years. Um, really? Did you see this grave? It's got a huge statue it, on there. It where, erected to him, I don't know, 20 years later. I wanted to ask about that. Tell where is that? Do you, uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember it now. Um, if that's, uh, I'm, piecing through where, where the statue is actually located? Uh, I can't tell you the name of the cemetery offhand, but it is in or near Franklin. And um, I know that Junius, who outlived Albert, went and delivered a speech at the um, dedication or whatever you call it when you put a big uh, monument on top of somebody's grave. Right. I, I, if I'm often pass through on the way up up north in the summer. I'll have to make a point to look for that. There's a Union soldier monument on the town common, but that's something different. Uh, I remember looking at that last summer, in fact. But yes, Franklin is is a place I have fond memories of. Uh, uh, Listeners to the show will be interested to know I was, uh, the university I was attending was Harvard University. Uh, It's important that I remind them of that each week, uh, Peter, so that's why I'm I'm doing that. That's not near Franklin, Uh, though. No, it's a it's a long train ride in down to South Station uh, and then the Red Line out to Cambridge. It, it was a good hour and a half, ninety minute commute. Um, 
back and forth, but that was a lot of time to read books or uh, grade papers or do whatever needed to be done. So I uh, didn't mind riding the train. Uh, Richardson also met Abraham Lincoln briefly in Kansas in 1859 before the war. And that, I mention that because one of the things that, that reoccurs in studying the Civil War is what a small country it was and how people keep uh, running into each other and, and showing up. Somehow, time after time, there's a, uh, there, there's a connection. Uh, two weeks ago, we had an author on the show who wrote about an ancestor of his who was a Confederate uh, cavalry officer who gets captured at the end of the war, cavalry general. But his brother had been Abraham Lincoln's desk mate when they were both in Congress in the 1840s. And he goes to see Lincoln on his way to prison in 1865. And Lincoln remembers his brother. And Lincoln remembers Albert Richardson. Lincoln apparently met everybody in the United States at some point. Uh, <laughs> well, R- Richardson went and lobbied him in the middle of the war mm-hmm. to get uh, one of his fellow journalists released after Sherman uh, refused to allow him to cover Sherman's army anymore because he'd revealed that Sherman had screwed up in Mississippi. Uh, he, he did not really succeed with Lincoln, but they had a, they had an interesting chat. Yes. So he met uh, Richardson and Lincoln met twice. So so the yeah the contacts are are there now when these two reporters go off uh, Junius and Albert go off to see the elephant as it were they. They head off to Missouri. There's going to be action there, certainly in 1861, and they get uh, nothing. But they do see a few battles uh, after that. Uh, Forts Henry and Donelson, for example, the fighting at Island Number 10. But they miss the big ones. They're not there at Pea Ridge. They're not there at Shiloh. Uh, it must have been frustrating for them trying to... Uh, it was extremely frustrating, particularly for Junius, who was less good at um, currying the favor of generals and was probably therefore less good at picking the right armies to attach yourself to. As you and I'm sure the listeners know, early in the war there was a lot of sitting around waiting Mm -hmm. and um, not a hell of a lot of fighting and Richardson seemed to be a lot better at picking an army that was actually going to go into combat. Um, Junius kept picking armies that were kind of sitting around, and he was very frustrated that he wasn't getting any copy into the paper. Right, so where Richardson ends up at Antietam, uh, you know, Brown almost sees the Battle of Perryville in October 1862. But Yeah, and he but gets on not... the wrong side of the Confederates, so he misses that too. He, he, he missed misses... Pea Ridge, but he wrote about it anyway. <laughs> him, him and another reporter from the, uh, named Colburn from the New York World they, they heard about an army, a Union army, heading to Arkansas, and they went chasing after it by train. When they got to Rolla, Missouri, they heard that the battle had been fought. The Battle of Pea Ridge had been fought, and they were 200 miles away. And they knew that a, a guy from a rival New York paper was there and was writing about it. So they just sat in their hotel room and made up these stories about it. And I think they, they were competing to see how, you know, absurdly vivid they could be. And so both of their stories, which, of course, you can find in the papers now on microfilm, mm-hmm. they're incredibly purple. Junius's was really purple. I mean, he describes the gore, and, the, and, and he describes, you know, the 
bullets going through a, ge- a certain general's hat and just missing him and totally made up. Um, but the, the uh, Times of London later reported that Junius' story was the best written piece in the Civil War, <laughs> which made the other reporters, you know, howl with laughter. They, they all thought it was hilarious. Now you'd get fired for that, of course, but in those days they didn't really have so many rules. Well, that's one thing that comes out. Uh, first, that's a sobering lesson for historians trying to use newspapers as primary sources is be sure your author was within 200 miles of the <laughs> items he's trying to describe. But you, it comes out here very clearly that journalism is quite different in the Civil War. Uh, you know, journalistic ethics don't prohibit you from doing that if you can scoop a paper. And they certainly don't require you to be objective politically, do they? No, in fact, the papers were, newspapers prior to the Civil War were all opinionated. Some of them were affiliated with political parties, and others were usually the mouthpieces of the guy who owned them and his political views. The Civil War kind of changed that, really, because, for instance, these two guys worked for the New York Tribune, which was run Mm -hmm. by Horace Greeley, and Greeley was famous before the war for all of his editorials on everything ranging from vegetarianism to whether you should use human manure to fertilize your crops, everything. He wrote about, he had opinions on everything. Well, when the Civil War started, people were less interested in Horace Greeley's opinions than they were in finding out whether their kid had been shot at Antietam. So uh, newspapers changed from organs of opinion to organs of fact, at, at least to some extent. Mm-hmm. People and, wanted to know what the hell was going on. But the Tribune already had a reputation as a, a very opinionated abolitionist paper, and that, that would certainly have an effect on the story of, of Richardson and Brown going forward. Uh, how did they get cap? Well, I, I'm, I'm trying to decide how, how much of a spoiler to give uh, our, our listeners tonight, given that, that we know the... Uh, uh, Junius and, and Brown wrote books afterward. You know they're going to make it through. So but we know still, they lived through it. Yeah, I've ruined the. I've ruined the. You ruined the ending. But but it's still. Uh, but you know, a journalist, you got to put the lead up front. Uh, uh, but it's still a, a wonderful story. Uh, it's in essence, it's a captivity story. They get captured and spend much of the war going from prison to prison, trying to get out legally or illegally, one way or another. How did they get captured in the first place? Well, they, were, they had uh, gone to Vicksburg. Everybody knew there was going to be a battle at Vicksburg. Grant's troops were in Mississippi, and everybody knew they were going to attack Vicksburg. So Junius and Albert met, um, I don't know, maybe 20 miles north of Vicksburg, and they hitched a ride on a barge that was going down the Mississippi past Vicksburg to a, a spot uh, a few miles south of Vicksburg where they were going to unload the, the hay for, the, for Grant's horses. So they hopped on this barge and tried to steam past the uh, Vicksburg and the Confederate guns there. And unfortunately, it was a night with a full moon, and the Confederates saw these barges coming down and started firing at them and blew them out of the water, killed you know a dozen or two Union soldiers that were on it and blew them up. And Junius and Albert and others, uh, Colburn, the, the other reporter from the world, jumped in the water and... The Confederates sent out uh, boats and picked up the survivors, including the three reporters, and they were captured. And they were immediately given parole. 
but Grant had announced that, and, and Vicksburg and Richmond were the two sites of parole for mm-hmm. prisoners. So they were going to just release him to Grant's army, but Grant announced that he was not going to take any paroled prisoners until the battle was over. So they shipped these three reporters to Richmond, along with other soldiers, to be paroled in Richmond. And when they got to Richmond, the reporter from The World, which is a Democratic paper and, and opposed to Lincoln, was immediately sent home, and as were the soldiers, but... The uh, Confederate guy in charge of parole, a guy named Robert Ould, detested the New York Tribune and just refused flat out to uh, release Albert and Junius. And he kept refusing all through the war. He never refused them. He was even refusing to release them after they'd escaped because he didn't know they'd escaped yet. Um, So he really, really hated the New York Tribune, and that's why they spent 20 months in prison. So they didn't expect this when they were sent by train from Vicksburg to Richmond. That was their destination was the the exchange site where paroled prisoners could be exchanged. The whole notion of parole is one of those just amazing nineteenth century ideas that you just give your word you will not bear arms against the enemy until properly exchanged. And then you're allowed to go back to your own side and wait for the notice you've been exchanged, and then you can go back in the war. Yeah, and that, uh, you know, it's amazing that people actually did that. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, all people didn't actually do that. And Grant, when he captured, I don't know, 20,000 people or something at Vicksburg, mm-hmm. paroled them all and um, found himself fighting them in, uh, in eastern Tennessee uh, a few months later. And that, was, that kind of put the kibosh on parole. And then the, uh, when the Confederates refused to treat black prisoners... The same mm-hmm. as white prisoners. That pretty much ended the whole parole uh, thing, and so um, both sides kept gathering more and more prisoners, thousands and thousands of prisoners, and they were no longer exchanging them. The uh, you mentioned uh, Old, the Confederate commissioner in charge of the exchange from from the rebel side. Uh, one fact I picked up from your book that I hadn't known was that he had been the uh, district attorney in Washington before the war when Dan Sickles, uh, Congressman Dan Sickles at the time, shot his wife's lover and was put on trial, uh, defended by Edwin Stanton, uh, got off on a claim of temporary insanity. But I guess I, it's another of those examples where everybody in America knew everybody, that Sickles and Stanton each knew other. each other. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? If you were I, in the... If you were in the sort of legal, political, upper military classes, mm-hmm. I guess they all pretty much knew each other. Yeah, th- that old was on the other side of that trial was was just a delightful new fact. Yeah, and he was he was head. widely mocked by newspapermen for having screwed up a case in which a guy shoots another guy in a park across from the White House, and <laughs> you know he did it, and you still can't get him convicted because he still said couldn't. He he was he was upset that his wife was cheating on him. Yes. Well. <laughs> So the, the newspapers mocked him. So maybe that's another reason why he didn't like newspaper report as much. Exactly. So these guys end up, uh, the, the heroes of the story, uh, Albert Richardson and Junius Brown, end up in, in Richmond expecting, they're holding these pieces of paper. They've signed a parole. They, they, they're entitled, they believe, to be free. But in the meantime, they're waiting in uh, Libby Prison. What, what's that like? Well, Libby Prison was um, an old 
tobacco warehouse on Cary Street in Richmond. They've got a plaque there on the site now, but the building is no longer there. Um, three or four stories and a basement where they put the black prisoners. And it was a site that held union officers. Union enlisted men were sent to a prison on an island in the, in the river outside uh, Richmond. Um, and there were some other prisons in Richmond also holding uh, people who were not officers. Officers were treated a lot better. They thought Libby was pretty awful until they went to other places that were worse. But basically, they, it was a bunch of guys, hundreds and hundreds of guys, um, with no beds, no uh, chairs, no nothing, just bare floors, um, just kind of sitting there, being very cold in the winter and very hot in the summer. They did have some, after Gettysburg, when they got an infusion of fresh troops and they sort of, they realized they'd won a, a couple of battles, they, uh, their spirits perked up a bit and they started basically a university. People started teaching classes. Uh, Albert Richardson ran a debate uh, about mesmerism. Um, they had a little newspaper that they published, in quotes, by uh, the guy who ran the newspaper reading the stuff aloud every week. So um, it was pretty awful, but officers tended to be educated people, and um, they entertained each other as best they could. They also spent every morning, everybody sat around every morning, killing the lice from their clothing that that had crawled on them the night before. That was the morning ritual, and reading the papers, of which there were many from from the, the Richmond papers. They would buy them from a a black guy who worked in the prison, and uh, pass them around. So they were getting all their information on the war from the rather unreliable Richmond papers. And so, which which uh, celebrate the Confederate victory at Gettysburg for a week or two, and they, interesting yeah, to see I them walking that was really back. Funny because story. both Richardson and Brown, mm-hmm. and many other people who were in Libby, talked about the celebration they had when they learned from the newspapers of the victory at Vicksburg. Of course, the victory of Vicksburg was the same day as the third day of Gettysburg. Gettysburg is several hundred miles closer. And I'm, I kept wondering, why aren't they celebrating Gettysburg? They don't even mention Gettysburg. So I went to the Library of Congress, and of course they've got the Richmond Papers, mm-hmm. and I read them and was literally laughing out loud at the way that literally for 10 days they were talking about how the Confederates had won, and then they would slowly back off. Well, we won, <laughs> but we didn't really have a complete victory. and So they didn't really know that the Union had won for 10 days later, so the, uh, they couldn't celebrate both events simultaneously. Eventually, the the truth comes out as it does. Uh, We're going to take another short break, come back and talk some more with Peter Carlson, author of Junius and Albert's Adventures in the Confederacy, A Civil War Odyssey. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. 
you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Peter Carlson, author of Junius and Albert's Adventures in the Confederacy, A Civil War Odyssey. We followed these intrepid reporters of the New York Tribune from their capture on the Mississippi River outside of Vicksburg, sent by train to Richmond, waiting to be paroled, imprisoned in Libby Prison. Uh, you mentioned there were worse places. Uh, one of them must have been their next destination. That was Castle Thunder, uh, just down the road. Yeah, Castle Thunder was a lot worse. Um, it was literally just a couple blocks down the road from Libby. It was also a tobacco warehouse. And... This was not a prison for officers. It was a prison for a whole mixed bag of enlisted men, Confederate deserters, common criminals, escaped slaves, prostitutes captured uh, after uh, Winchester was taken from the Yankees, all kinds of people in there. And it was really much more of a hellhole for most of those prisoners. But the guy who ran it was crooked and... um, permitted a few prisoners to stay in one well-furnished room with a window you could open and a stove you could heat the place with if they would uh, get booty from the north and share it with him. So Junius and Albert ended up in there with some reporters from the New York Herald and, I don't know, a dozen or so other guys. Uh, And they they would get packages from the north and money from the north, and they would buy coffee, which was very rare there, and um, food to augment their meager prison diet, and, uh, and so they lived pretty well in Castle Thunder. The, uh, at one point you mentioned a couple uh, spies who are incarcerated with them, Price Lewis and John Scully, uh, who I came across, uh, I don't know when it was, a year or so ago, uh, in a book called A Spy for the Union by Corey Recco that we discussed on this show. Uh, Lewis and Scully betrayed Timothy Webster, another Union spy, 
and he was ex- Webster was executed. So when I saw these guys show up in your book, uh, Lewis and Scully, there in Castle Thunder, I said, "Oh, I know those guys. They, they're they're bad guys." Uh, but they did not get executed, although they were threatened. With no, it. they were they were uh, supposed to be executed, but they ended up in this room for the citizens' room they called it for basically it was a country club prison. And I thought, my God, how do you, how do you get a, a, a condemned prisoner into this fancy room? So I did a little research and found that Price Lewis later in his life had written a memoir of this, which is now is ensconced in a college in upstate New York. And he, uh, unlike Junius and Albert, revealed the whole bribery scheme. And then I, I looked at reports by the Herald reporters, and they didn't reveal the bribery scheme, but sort of put it, laid it between the lines. Mm-hmm. And I realized how Junius and Albert got in there. That when, when these guys wrote their books, they didn't say that, I guess because they didn't, you know, the war was still going on while they were writing, and they, um, uh, they didn't want to ruin the deal for those people who were in the, in the little country club room. But yeah, they were bribing this guy who was a wonderful character, the warden there, named George Washington Alexander, who was a playwright, among many other things. He had been a rebel pirate on the Chesapeake, was captured by the Union, uh, escaped, came back to Richmond. They put him in charge of this prison. He wrote a terrible musical comedy play that was running in Richmond during the war, and he wrote himself a part in the play, and he would leave the prison after his shift in the day and go to the theater and perform in this play. Um, and meanwhile, he was taking bribes from the guys in the citizens' room. It's uh, it's an aspect of the Civil War you don't hear that much about. No, the the banality of, of evil, he's, he's a bad playwright and a bad actor and uh, corruptible. And he also beats and tortures prisoners uh, on occasion, too. So he's really uh, thoroughly... Yes, he he's, doesn't sound like a fun fellow. But no. he treated... Al, you know, Albert and Julius were thrilled to be uh, in the in the country club room there. At least they were in and the... And he, he kind of liked reporters because he thought of himself as a writer. And <laughs> so he kind of uh, liked to hang around with the reporters and talk to them and they all kind of mocked him behind his back, but um, they didn't want to mock him too much because they liked staying in that cushy room. The stay doesn't last forever, though. How Their next destination is uh, Salisbury, North Carolina, which uh, listeners to the show will recognize as really second only to Andersonville as a place you do not want to be sent uh, in terms of southern prison camps. How did they get sent there? They just decided to send them. I guess they had too many prisoners at Castle Thunder, and so they sent um, a bunch of them to Salisbury, which when they arrived in February or March of 1864, it wasn't too bad. There was about 600 or 800 guys living in uh, former cotton mill buildings, and they had sort of a campus. They had a, a wall, a fence around it, a wall around it, but there were, I think, four acres of grass so you could wander outside, which you could never do in, in the Richmond prisons. They play, actually played baseball in the, in, the field, in the field there. But it really got bad in the fall when um, the Confederates decided to send all their prisoners out of Richmond, which was, of course, being menaced by Grant. So within a few weeks in October and November of 1864, 9,000 
prisoners were shipped to Salisbury. So instead of having 800 guys all living indoors, you now had over 9,000, many of them, most of them, living in that four-acre yard and in holes in the ground. And uh, it, was, it was really awful. It was comparable to Andersonville. And you had uh, all kinds of diseases, cholera and dysentery and everything, killing people off at the rate of, at some point, two or three dozen a day. They would bring what they called the dead cart into the, into the uh, field there and just throw bodies on it. I think they could fit eight on, and then they would bring them out to a field and throw them in mass graves. You can go now to that cemetery. It's now a, an official military cemetery, and you see these long trenches where they just tossed these guys in and, and covered them up naked. They, took, they stripped all the clothes off them because the guys in the prison were freezing, and they would eagerly take even the worst hideous clothes from dead guys and wear them. So every day they would take the dead carts out two or three times and throw, you know, eight or ten or twelve or twenty or thirty naked dead Union soldiers into these ditches and cover them up. There, it's, it's a pretty grim scene, but there was one local minister named Mangum who would go out there and, and, and just put leaves on top of the faces of the men in the, in the uh, graves before they threw dirt on them just to give them some little modicum of dignity. The, uh, how did uh, Brown and Richardson survive that? Well, they were, they were inside. They still had their inside position, and, and they were working. The Richardson was the official clerk of the, of the doctors who were there, and so he recorded all the sick people's names, the regiments that they had come from, the diseases that they had, and he recorded who died. Um, and uh, Junius was basically a nurse. He was sent out into the yard to deal with the sick people there because a lot of the guys who were sick in the yard were afraid to go into the hospital because no one ever seemed to come out of it alive. So Junius would go out with water and with the few medicines that were available, which weren't many, and crawl into the holes that these guys were living in and give them a little water, give them a little medicine, and cheer them up. And he was quite beloved by the prisoners and uh, they called him Dr. Brown even though he wasn't a doctor and one of them uh, asked Brown at one point what kind of doctor are you and he said I'm an amateur physician Junius was kind of pompous I'm an amateur physician and a lot of these guys didn't know what amateur meant and they one of them told Richardson later these amateur doctors are a lot better than those regular doctors do they do they, do they go to school longer <laughs> Get a degree in amateur medicine. Uh, well, the the parole never does come through. The attempts to be exchanged are unsuccessful. And I'll let's leave it to the readers to uh, discover how uh, these two and some others make their way out of the prison, which eventually they do in the winter of sixty four sixty five. But just getting outside the prison walls uh, in western North Carolina still leaves you 200 miles away from the Union Army at Knoxville, Tennessee. How do they get uh, – that? that's the, the final part of the adventure, and uh, it, 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 it's quite something. Uh, how, how do they do that? 
How, how do well, you get away? Yeah, to me, this is the this is the great part of the book. Um, what do you do? You've escaped. You know, you're now basically coatless, uh, and you've escaped in in December, and you have to cross the mountains, uh, 200 miles away, as the crow flies. Um, and you're in rebel territory. So what do you you need help? But who, so who do you go to? So who would likely to be sympathetic? And what they immediately thought was slaves. So they would, during the period before they got in the mountains, they would walk all night, and as dawn was coming, they would find a plantation, and they would find a slave cabin, and they would knock on the door, and they would say, we're Yankee prisoners, escaped from Salisbury, can you help us? And they reported later that they were never refused help, never. Sometimes the slaves said, it's not safe here, and they would lead them to another place where they could get help. But the slaves always helped them, and frequently they hid them in barns and smuggled them food. Um, so they did that for about the first week of their journey. And then they were in the mountains. And in the mountains of North Carolina and Tennessee, there were very few slaves. It wasn't a slave economy. Mm-hmm. And um, it was mostly small farmers, people who would be who would be mocked today as hillbillies. But uh, these hillbillies, many of them were sympathetic to the Union uh, because they had always been treated poorly and condescendingly by the rich planters from the lowlands who had, you know, formed the Confederacy for their own benefit. So all of the people tend to forget this, but all of the counties in the mountain counties in North Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia, when there were secession referendums before the war, these counties all voted not to secede. Most of the people in those counties were not secessionists. So there were a lot of sympathetic people in the mountains. The only problem was, unlike the lowlands, you couldn't tell who was sympathetic by the color of his skin. So that made things a little difficult. Junius and Albert had been initiated into an organization called the Heroes of America in prison. This was a pro-union organization which had up to 10,000 members, mostly in North Carolina and Tennessee, but also in Virginia, mostly in the mountain counties, although it was pretty strong among Quakers and and some other religious groups in the lowlands of North Carolina. And they had these quasi-Masonic passwords and whatnot, so you could, you could look at somebody and, and ask him a certain question, and you could find out whether he was a member of the group. So they were helped by a uh, guard at Salisbury who was a member of this group who led them, who told them how to get to his family's uh, house in the mountains of North Carolina. And from there, one... One person sympathetic to the Yankees would take them to the house, you know, 10, 12 miles away to somebody else. And that's how they made their way across the mountains. And they stayed with with some anti-Confederate guerrillas. They met some scary people on both sides uh, as they made their journey. It it is a a scary uh, part of the book, the adventure. You you point out it's similar to some of the stories we see in the novel and movie Cold Mountain where uh, North Carolinians are, are killing one another in absolute cold blood, uh, ruthless uh, family uh, feuds explode into to murderous violence as, as 
pro-secessionists, anti-secessionists, uh, shoot one another, and here are these Yankees trying to figure out who they can trust and who they can't. Well, it is really a, a very interesting book, well told, uh, gives a new insight into what these individuals were like, but also something about journalism and the Civil War. And I certainly suggest anyone listening to the show, if you haven't read this, it's very much worth your time. It's not very long, reads journalistically, uh, and I mean that uh, from a historian as a high compliment. It's very readable. Uh, so highly recommend Junius and Albert's Adventures in the Confederacy, A Civil War Odyssey. The author is Peter Carlson. Peter, thanks for joining us on the show tonight. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. And listeners, as always, thanks for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm-hmm.